with me. The 24th Psalm. If you're not familiar with your Bible, it should be smack in the middle there-ish. A big book in the middle of your Bible. And I'm going to read this psalm for you in its entirety. And as I do so, brothers and sisters, I remind you that this is the word of the living God who created everything out of nothing. That's how powerful his word is. So let us submit ourselves before it and receive it with joy and gladness. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask now for you to teach us the way of your statutes, that we might keep them to the end. Give us understanding, we pray, that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole heart. Lead us in the path of your commandments, for we delight in them. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and give us life in your ways. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, according to the church calendar, which... The Western Church doesn't observe much nowadays, but according to the church calendar, historically, we find ourselves in what we call the Advent season. And if you were here last week, you remember that Jordan announced when we started observing Advent that Advent simply means coming. And what it reminds us of is the fact that ever since Genesis chapter 3.15, God's people under the Old Covenant were looking forward and preparing their hearts, readying themselves for the coming of the promised king in Genesis 3.15, who would crush the head of the serpent and, and who would establish a kingdom that would be forever and ever, an eternal kingdom. And so the old covenant saints were looking forward to that coming king. And then when Jesus came, that's the arrival or the first coming, the first advent of that promised Messiah and King. And so when we celebrate 
Advent, we're looking back on the first coming or the first advent of Christ. And we're also looking forward to the fact that when he ascended, he promised that he would come in the same manner. He would come in the clouds, and then he would fully and finally establish his kingdom. The kingdoms of this world on that great day will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah, his Christ, and then he will reign forever and ever. And so what this teaches us then is that Christians, whether under the Old Covenant or the New Covenant, have been a people in waiting, a people preparing themselves and readying themselves for the arrival of their promised Messiah, their promised King. And what this psalm helps us do is prepare and ready ourselves for the second coming of our King. It prepared the Old Covenant saints for the first advent of their king, Jesus' first coming, and it prepares us for his second coming, his second advent. And the way that it does that is this psalm answers three vitally important questions that we must know the answer to in order to be prepared for the second coming of our king. And here are the questions, the three questions that this psalm answers. First of all, this psalm answers the question, who is our king? In verses 1 through 2, we need to know who this king is. And what this psalm shows us is that he is the sovereign creator and king of all. Because he's made it all. Second of all, this psalm answers the question for us, who can approach this king? If this king is so glorious and mighty and sovereign and holy, then how can we ever hope to approach him? And what we see in verses 3 through 6 is that no one can approach him based on the merits of their own good works, their own performance, their own law-keeping. And then thirdly, we get to the good news when we see how this psalm answers the question, what has our king done so that we can approach him? We see that in verses 7 through 10, that God has done everything necessary for us so that the way is open, so that we can have communion and fellowship with our triune God. He's done that all in the person and work of his son. And so my hope and prayer this morning as we look at this psalm is that even as it prepared the old covenant saints for the first coming of Christ, that it would prepare us as new covenant saints for the second coming of Christ, that our hearts would be prepared for his return. So let's look first then at how this psalm answers the question, who is our king? Look at verses one through two with me. First, we have a superscript. And it says, a psalm of David. So we know that David, the king of Israel, is the one who wrote this. And yet David here is not describing his kingship. He is describing the kingship of Yahweh. Because ultimately, David is is a little representative of God's kingship. But who ultimately is their king? Their king ultimately is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this psalm is about Yahweh, Israel's king. And here's what David says that you need to know about your king. The earth is Yahweh's. It is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. And David knows that his audience is familiar with the Old Testament. And so when he mentions this, that God created everything, established the earth, and filled it, that's to bring our minds back to Genesis chapter 1. God alone exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
in communion with one another, and out of the overflow of their glory and love and goodness, our triune God creates everything out of nothing by simply speaking it into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we see his power. We see his might. We see his wisdom and how he has created everything and prepared earth for man, creating him in his image. And what this psalm is telling us is the important implication that because God created everything out of nothing, everything belongs to him. They are his possessions. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth is his, he created that, and everything that fills it, because he created it to fill it, the world and those who dwell therein. What we notice about earthly kings, about human kings and leaders, is that they fight and they squabble over this land, right? You hear about it all the time in the news. And these resources, and having control over these people, And so there's wars and battles and all of these things that are happening in in world news. And they're vying for the right to be able to say, I have authority over this land and over these people and over this location and these resources. And in the midst of that cacophony of noise, we hear the reality that by divine right, because he created everything out of nothing, the earth and everything in it, belongs not to any man, but to God alone. The God who created everything out of nothing. Who not just created it, who gave it existence, but then sustains its existence and guides and directs sovereignly everything to their appointed ends. And so as we hear this reality, our minds are just meant to explode. I mean, we could spend... The rest of uh, Sunday upon Sunday, just talking about the implications of that. And I'll spare you from that this morning. But some of the implications are huge. One of them is the reality that nothing that you possess ultimately belongs to you. Not even your own person. God created you in his image, body and soul. And since he created you, you belong to him. And do you know what you owe to him? Whatever he commands of you, because you are his. And he's created us to glorify him, to worship him, to adore him, to orchestrate our entire lives to show how great and majestic and glorious he is. That's what the implication of this is. And and the other implication is, and this would have blown the minds of the Israelites and any of the nations around them, the God of Israel is not just the God of Israel. He's not merely some small tribal deity over this location and this people group. No, he is the God of the entire universe. Of the galaxies that have yet been discovered when the time that David penned this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It all belongs to God. And so he is not some tribal deity who needs to be pitted against some other tribal deity and we'll see who's stronger. No, he is the sovereign creator of all. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And so we belong to him, body and soul, as our creator. And we owe him worship. 
And this should bring great comfort to us if we're Christians. Because we know that everything belongs to God, not ultimately to any man. And so he will provide for us, right? Isn't this why Jesus says, why do you worry? You can't add a single moment to your life by worrying. Your father will take care of you. He knows what you need before you even ask it. So don't worry. The sovereign creator of all will care for you. But another implication amongst a host of others is that we are to be humbled before this God. The God who's so powerful that he creates everything out of nothing by simply speaking it into existence and then continues to uphold it and sovereignly rule over it by the word of his power. We're to come before a God trembling because this is our king. He's the creator and the sovereign of all. But the question that then naturally follows is, okay, we come before him trembling, but how can we approach such so great a God? How can we approach a God who's holy and righteous? And the text answers that question. Who can approach our king? Look at verses 3 through 6 with me as we see the answer to who can actually approach this sovereign creator and king of all. David writes, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So David's now narrowing his scope, right? He comes out of the gate in this psalm, reminding us of the immensity of God and the universality of his kingship and his sovereignty. But then he narrows it down to Israel, the special people that he's set his affection upon in the Old Covenant, the people whom he has called his own so that they are his people and he is their God. And here's the question that David asks. He says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Now, what's he talking about here? And who shall stand in his holy place? Well, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that the hill of the Lord is what? It's Mount Zion, located in Jerusalem. And what's on top of the mount in Jerusalem? The holy place, the holy of holies. God is everywhere present, but he said to Israel, I will meet with you in a unique and special way in the holy of holies. And so they could only go once a year into the holy holies and a priest would go in and have to offer a sacrifice. He couldn't go in without blood. And so David's question is, who can have fellowship and communion with this mighty, holy, sovereign, eternal creator? Who can minister in his presence? Who can ascend this hill and dwell with God in the holy of holies? This is a vitally important question, isn't it? Most important question you can ask, that I can ask. And so what's David's answer? David's answer is to give several requirements that someone would have to meet in order to ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy place. And he gives us two positive things that a person must do and two negative things that they may, must not do in order to be fit to ascend into the holy of holies where the Lord dwells. Look at verse 4 with me as we look first at the positive things they must do. 
Verse 4 says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Let's just look at the first half of that verse. So first of all, they have to have, a, they have, have clean hands. And we know from the Old Covenant that it was vitally important for Israel to be clean and holy before the Lord because it showed that they were impure and unholy and God alone was holy. And so in order to interact with him, to dwell with him, they had to be purified. And so David is saying, listen, you've got to obey the Ten Commandments perfectly. That's how you have clean hands. Your moral life must conform to the Word of God. And so how does Jesus break down the Ten Commandments? He says, what are the two greatest commandments? First of all, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That encapsulates the first table of the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments. And then second of all, he says, you need to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That deals with the second table of the Ten Commandments, those remaining six commandments. And so whoever is to approach the Lord and ascend the hill and go into the Holy of Holies, he must have a life that is perfectly conformed to God's moral law, to the Ten Commandments. He must perfectly love God, and he must perfectly love his neighbor. And more than that, he goes on to say he must not just have clean hands. His outward life must not just conform to the Ten Commandments, but it must be driven by a pure heart. Jesus says the exact same thing in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. And so it must not just be outward conformity so that other people will think well of us because other people are easy to fool. No, no. These, these actions must proceed from a heart that is pure before God, that desires to do everything that it does to the glory of God, to show His greatness, His goodness, His mercy. That must be the intention of the one who is fit to approach the hill of the Lord and the holy place of God. So that's positively. Must have a morally conformed life to God's Ten Commandments, a heart that is, is before God, desirous to obey Him in everything and do it for His glory. And then negatively, look at the rest of the second half of verse 4. David goes on to say, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. So what's he talking about here? He's, he's talking about idol worship. He's saying the person who can approach God in the Holy of Holies and have communion and fellowship with him is one who does not offer himself up to idols. Because why? When you offer yourself up to an idol, what are you doing? You're making yourself unclean. God created you for himself, not for a false idol, not for a false god. And so that's why a passage like Ezekiel 36, 25, you don't have to turn there, but let me read it for you, says, as a part of the new covenant promise, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be cleaned from all your uncleannesses. And what are those uncleannesses? And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And so the man or woman who can approach God must have not offered themselves up. They must not have a divided heart in which they are worshiping false idols. And then lastly, the very end of verse 4, David says, in order to approach God, you, meet, you must be one who does not swear deceitfully. What does this remind us of? The ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not lie. 
You shall not swear deceitfully. And so the person that can approach God is a person characterized by truth. They speak the truth. They live their life in light of the truth. They love the truth. They make it known to other people. They're truthful in their dealings with others. And so here are the the requirements, brothers and sisters. Positively, have a perfect life. All of your actions must conform to God's law. Have a heart that desires to glorify God in everything you do. And negatively, don't worship idols and don't lie. Be a truthful person. Now here's the question that I'm sure you're already asking yourself. Who fits these qualifications? Well, if you remember your, your, your Bible, Adam initially, when God created him, did, didn't he? God created Adam able to obey the Ten Commandments that were written on his heart, the moral law written on his heart. God created man before he was fallen, able, given the faculties, the ability to obey God. And yet that's not what Adam did, did he? Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. They ate of it and they disobeyed God. And so you know what happened once they had eaten of that fruit? Probably the most tragic scene in all of Scripture save the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior. But it necessitated the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior. Adam and Eve being driven out of the garden. This garden temple where they were able to dwell with God, their holy of holies, for their sin and rebellion, they were driven out. And an angel was put there with a sword to block the way so that the way to God, communion and fellowship with him, was shut to them. And what was open to them now? What they were not created for, the way of death and God's wrath and destruction. And so Adam was initially fit to be able to ascend the hill of the Lord and dwell with him. But after the fall, Adam was unable to. That's why he's driven from the garden. And we in Adam, And through our own sinful choices are now unable as well to meet these requirements. We are not able to have a pure heart and clean hands and not give ourselves to idols and lie. That that, all of those things characterize us. And in our fallen state, we are unable to carry them out. And this is the testimony of scripture as soon as the fall happens. Think about Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. The Lord looks at mankind and Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So much for a pure heart. So much for clean hands. So much for not worshiping false idols and lying. And that's why God does what? He floods and destroys in a massive catastrophe all of mankind save Noah and his family. Or think about Jeremiah 17.9. What does Jeremiah testify about fallen man? He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We're so profoundly fallen that we can't even understand how messed up our hearts are. And of course, probably the best text to turn to in the New Testament is Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. You don't have to turn there. I would encourage you, if you're taking notes, to write that in your notes and and look at it a little bit later today, perhaps. But what is Paul doing in, in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 11? He's basically saying, listen, Jew and Gentile alike, 
are all profoundly fallen and unable to approach God. Instead, they don't deserve communion with God. They deserve destruction and wrath from God. And then how does he prove that point? He just stacks Old Testament passage after Old Testament passage on top of each other to to prove his point. Go look up all the citations that are in Romans 3, verses 10 through 18 sometime. But let me read it to you. I'm sure you know it well. None is righteous. Really? Not even one, Paul? No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Paul, are you sure? Not even one. What about lying? Well, their throat is an open grave. And they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? Man in his fallen state, not one. Not one. And that's why we see, by the way, when God approaches his saints throughout sacred scripture, even those who are in a gracious covenant with him, when he approaches them, what is their response every single time? Let me give you a few examples of this. Isaiah chapter 6, God shows this vision to Isaiah where he beholds the Lord in the temple and the, the train of his robe filling it. And how does Isaiah respond in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 5? And I said, woe is me. He's calling down curses on himself. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. He, the Lord draws near to him in his holiness and his glory. And Isaiah recoils back and falls to the ground and calls down curses on himself. Because he knows based on his own merit, he cannot approach the Lord. Or think of Peter. When the Lord Jesus is calling his disciples to himself in Luke chapter 5. You remember Luke is out, um, Luke, Peter is out fishing all night. And they haven't caught anything. And so he's coming into shore, I'm sure, defeated and frustrated and angry. And the Lord says, hey, why don't you try casting your net on this side of the boat? And I can almost imagine Peter's response in my mind. Lord, what are you talking about? We fished all night. There's not going to be anything. This isn't a good spot. It's too shallow here. But he casts the nets out, and he pulls up so many fish in the net that the boat starts to bow down in the water, and they're in, in fear and in, in worry of capsizing. And how does uh, Peter respond in Luke 5, 8? But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He gets a little glimpse of the reality that Jesus is the God-man. He is Yahweh, and his divine glory peeks through the flesh that he has. And he beholds that he is the sovereign king and creator. And Peter acknowledges it and he falls down on his face and says, depart from me for I'm sinful. How can I have anything to do with you? Or think of the apostle John in his revelation that he receives the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord appears to him 
in his glorified risen state. And when John sees him, he says in John 1.17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. They know I am not worthy to stand before the sovereign, holy creator of all. I cannot approach him. And so I cannot claim these blessings that David talks about. Look at verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 24. The person who does these things, who meets these requirements, he will receive blessing from Yahweh, from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And yet, brothers and sisters, we forfeit that in Adam and through our own sinful choices so that we don't receive this blessing, we don't receive this righteousness because we do not seek him. We have not sought the face of the God of Jacob. Instead, what do we deserve? We don't only not deserve to have fellowship with him. Instead, we deserve to be objects of his wrath for our rebellion. So then here's the question. The question is, do we reflect on this often? Do we meditate on this often? You ever had somebody tell you, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget where you came from. This was once true of every single one of us in Adam, in our fallen state. Unable to have fellowship with God. Worse than that, we didn't even desire it. We didn't seek it. We hated God. We wanted to overthrow his rule and reign. The one who created us and has given us all things. What kind of thanks have we shown him? We've shaken our fists in his hands and said, I wish I was in your place. I deserve to be God, not you. And so do we reflect on that so that it shows up when we interact with unbelievers? Is there an air of superiority that we have or we think we're better than them? We're not, brothers and sisters. You want to know what the difference is between us and an unbeliever? The grace of God. That's it. And so that should show up in the way that we interact with them and pray for them and, and want to see compassion shown to them and want to, to see God miraculously regenerate them and give them new hearts that are alive to Him. Is there that, that aroma? No doubt we're going to offend them. We're going to offend them, but it shouldn't be because we have an air of superiority. Our message is offensive enough. And so there should be an air of humility of one who's simply bringing bad news and good news. But again, just like the reality of our creator should cause us to be humble, that he's our sovereign king and creator, so too the fact that we can't ascend the hill of the Lord should result in us great humility as we think about the coming of our Lord and preparing our hearts for his second coming. But is that where we end the sermon? No, thankfully that's not the end of the text, is it? We've still got three more verses to go, four more verses to go. And we should be thankful for that because so far we've just gotten bad news. God is a holy creator and we can't approach him because we're fallen in Adam and we deserve his wrath. So now let's answer the third question that our text answers for us. What has our king done so that we can approach him? What has he done? Well, look at verses 7 through 10 with me. Lift up your heads, O gates. 
I'm reading it louder because do you note the exclamation point? And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Many commentators that I read, and we can't know decisively, think that David wrote this in response to the Lord returning the ark to the people of Israel so that they could bring it back into Jerusalem. And I could see how that would fit. And, and so the, the image then, if that's true, that, that David is using here is of a conquering victorious king who is approaching Jerusalem. And the people, there are people attending him. He's got his captives in tow. Those who he's conquered are with him, all the spoils of war. And he's got a chorus with him that's singing, Open the gates! Here comes the king, victorious in battle. And then there's a chorus of people um, inside the city, behind the wall, saying, Who is this king of glory? And so for dramatic effect, there's this chorus that's singing back and forth to one another. But you see, brothers and sisters, as I said in the beginning, or at least I think I said in the beginning, this psalm is not ultimately about David or anything he did in his life. This psalm is about Yahweh and his appointed king. The one who, as Psalm 2 tells us, the Father has appointed and set on his holy hill on Zion. And so here's the question. The the king here is approaching the temple, right? Our problem is that we can't ascend the hill of the Lord. So he's approaching the very presence of God. Because all of the, the Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the temple, all of these are types and shadows. Even David's kingship is meant to point us to the realities of the new covenant. That there is a heavenly temple. That there is a holy of holies, not on earth, but in the very presence of God. Where, and that's what's been barred to us in Adam. That access and communion and fellowship. And so the question then is, what is this temple that the king is drawing near? Well, it's that heavenly temple that I'm talking about. Now, you may say, how do you know that? Give me some proof. All right, let's go to the book of Hebrews. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. We have not reached this point in our study of the book. Lord willing, we will. But we have to go here with this text because this makes the point abundantly clear. Hebrews chapter 8, look at verse 5 with me. The author of the book of Hebrews is talking about the old covenant priests and how they would offer sacrifices. And here's what the author says. They serve, those old covenant priests, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent... He was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. In other words, this earthly temple is the copy. The reality is a heavenly temple where God himself dwells. And see, that is, we don't only not have access, right? A priest could only go once a year to the earthly temple and with blood. And they had to tie a rope around it. Because oftentimes they would die, and they couldn't go in there because then they would die. And so you just have all these bodies piling up, and we can't get them out of the Holy of Holies, so they'd attach a rope to them. 
And if he died in there, they could pull him out. And they'd put a bell. They heard the bell stop ringing. They'd be like, he's probably dead, so let's pull him out. But see, they had little access here, only the appointed high priest, and we have no access here. That was meant to be a picture of the reality that there is this heavenly temple that needs cleansing so that we can have access to it. And so this is the temple that Jesus is approaching. And so what this psalm is then talking about, think of this, is the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember in Acts chapter 1, after he rises from the dead and teaches his disciples for 40 days, he then ascends into the heavens bodily, physically. His glorified body raised up into the clouds and disappears. And where is he going? He's going into the heavenly temple. He is the king that is ascending up. And so we're hearing in Psalm 24, the song that the angels were singing as Jesus is ascending into the heavenly temple. And you say, wait a minute, how do we know that Jesus is the king of glory that's being talked about here? Well, you don't have to turn there, but let me read for you two passages from the New Testament that make this abundantly clear. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8. Paul writes, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So brothers and sisters, which member of the Trinity was crucified? Not the Father, not the Spirit, but the Son. And He is given this title. He is the Lord of glory. He is the King of glory. Or look at James chapter 2, verse 1. Well, you don't have to look there, but let me, let me read it to you. James chapter 2, verse 1. James says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ? The Lord of glory. Jesus is this King of glory that the psalm is talking about. And so David's not talking about himself. He's talking about Jesus who is ascending on high, going to the heavenly temple, but here's another question that we need to answer. Look at Psalm 24, verse 8 with me again. Psalm 24, verse 8. Notice the chorus says, Who is this King of glory? And the other chorus responds, The Lord, strong and mighty, Yahweh, mighty in battle. Okay, so what is this battle that Jesus, the King of glory, who's ascending to the heavenly temple, has won? It's the battle against sin. It's the battle against death. It's the battle against the devil. Because Jesus, our king, came and took flesh upon himself. He assumed a human nature. And brothers and sisters, hear me on this. He perfectly lived the life that is required in order to ascend the hill of the Lord. Jesus alone has clean hands, right? You remember he comes to John the Baptist and says, baptize me. And John says, you don't need to be baptized by me. I need to be baptized by you. And what's Jesus' response? We must fulfill, I must fulfill all righteousness. I'm going to fulfill the law for my people. And so he perfectly obeys the Ten Commandments. He has clean hands. And he has a pure heart. How many times did Jesus tell his disciples, it is my will to do the Father's glory. 
He tells them at one point, I have food that you don't even know about. It is my food. It is my sustenance. It is my life to live for the Father's glory. And so he has a pure heart, doesn't he? The only human being to ever live who had a pure heart. And he never swore to false idols, even when he was tempted. Remember what Satan tells him? Hey, I know that the Father has promised you all the nations. I know that because I know my Old Testament, Psalm 2. And so here's the thing, Jesus. Forget that whole cross business. You know that suffering servant stuff in Isaiah? Forget about that, Jesus. You bow down and worship me, and I will give you the crown without a cross. And what does Jesus say? No. He responds with the word of God. He resists the temptations of Satan that the first Adam failed to resist. The second Adam, Jesus, resisted. And so he did not swear to an idol. And he never spoke a lie. Jesus never spoke a lie. He's incapable of speaking a lie. Because he, as the Son of God, is truth itself. And so he does all of this as our representative. That's why we celebrate his first coming, his taking upon our human nature. This was necessary so that he could, in his human nature, approach this temple. And then what does he do? He dies on the cross. This is another important part of his battle. He dies on the cross, paying the penalty that the law required for our sin and rebellion. Jesus pays that in full. He drinks the cup of the Father's wrath to the very bottom so that there's none left for us. And now what's handed to us instead is the cup of blessing. So we're no longer objects of the Father's wrath. We've got righteousness accounted to us. We're justified in God's sight. We're no longer slaves to Satan. Right, Jesus says, I saw the, 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 the devil like falling from the sky. I've bound the strong man is what he says in the Gospels. He's defeated Satan. He's conquered him. And then the ultimate sign of that defeat of Satan is when he rises from the dead. If I would have stayed dead, that would have been proof that the Father wasn't pleased with what I did, but the Father is pleased. And so I rise from the dead. And then he ascends. And he's hearing about his victory from the angels. Angels are accompanying him as he's ascending into heaven. And the angels in the heavenly temple are saying, who is this king of glory? Do you know why they don't recognize him? They know who the son of God is. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail, incarnate deity. He's got a human nature. Who is this king of glory? He's the Lord of hosts mighty in battle. He's done everything necessary for our salvation and he will bring about the full and final battle we know in Revelation chapter 19. But here's the amazing thing that we need to reflect on. Why are these gates shut? Why are these doors, right? Open up the doors. Open up the gates is what the angels are saying in the heavenly temple. But why are they shut? Athanasius, uh, early 4th century church father, I was reading him on this psalm, and he says, listen, folks, you need to, well, he doesn't say folks, but he says, listen, we need to understand and meditate on the reality, the Son, Jesus, as the Son of God, according to his divinity, did not need to earn his way into the heavenly temple. That's where he came from, the glory that he had with the Father, the fellowship that he had with the Father. And so the, the gates aren't shut to him according to his divinity. No, those gates that are shut are shut to us according to our humanity. Our humanity. 
is shut. It's shut to our humanity because we're fallen in Adam. And so we can't ascend the hill of the Lord. We don't have access to the Lord in the heavenly temple. We lost that in Adam. And so the second Adam has come. And so what's being said is, you know, that way that was shut, the angel that was put there. Well, now these ancient doors that were closed have now been opened to you, O man. Why? Because your Savior has assumed a human nature, done everything that is necessary, and now here he is approaching. And so the angels are saying, open up the doors. Let him in. And it's not ultimately for him, but it's for you and it's for me, brothers and sisters. Because he's our representative head now. In Adam, the way was shut because he was our representative head. But now we are in Christ. And so the way is open. You want proof of that? Look back to the book of Hebrews real quick. Hebrews chapter 9. This will make it crystal clear in case you're doubting what I'm teaching here. Hebrews chapter 9. Look at verses 23 and 24. Again, talking about the temple, the earthly temple. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. What are the copy of the heavenly things? It's the earthly things. And they had to be purified with blood. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. What's the better sacrifice? It's not the blood of bulls and goats that we can take up into the heavenly temple. No, it's the blood of the God-man Jesus Christ. The final sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so that's why he goes on to say in verse 24, For Christ has entered into the holy places made, oh sorry, not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God, not on his own behalf, but on whose? On our behalf. The gates are open now to the king of glory according to his humanity, although they were already open according to his divinity for us because he's representing us. The way that the first Adam shut through his rebellion has now been opened through the second Adam's obedience. And I don't know if we reflect on this enough. There's a lot of things we don't reflect on enough, do we? According to me, apparently, this morning. But we don't reflect enough on the fact that Jesus' ascension was necessary. It's not just kind of a cool display like, hey, Jesus can fly. No, that is not the point. Under the old covenant, according to the Levitical law, what was necessary? Yes, you had to kill and slaughter the animal and spill its blood, but that wasn't enough. You did that outside of the the, the Holy of Holies. And then what did you do? You took the blood and you went into the Holy of Holies and you atoned for the sins of the people by splattering it on the mercy seat. And here's the thing. It was not enough, brothers and sisters, for Jesus to merely die on the cross here on earth. That would not have been enough for our atonement. Instead, he had to take himself and offer himself as a sacrifice in the heavenly temple. And thus, atonement was completed. The Holy Spirit was sent and all the blessings that were promised to the victorious king under the old covenant are true. They find their yes and amen in the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And so what do we have in this psalm? What was happening in heaven when that happened? The angels singing for dramatic effect, the chorus back and forth. 
that your heart soar at that reality. Because brothers and sisters, here's the thing. We're now united to Jesus. And so as we're told in Colossians 3, we're now seated in the heavenlies in Him. And that way is open because of what Jesus has done. And so because we are united with Him by grace through faith, with the Lord Jesus Christ, do you understand what happens to us now? What happens to us now is we start to look like people that can ascend the hill of the Lord. We never do it based on our own merits. But we start to look more and more like our Savior. His Spirit sanctifies us, and we love His law. And so our our lives start to conform to the Word. And people can see it. And we have desires in our hearts that that, that please God now, because His Spirit's at work in us. And, And we see that growing. This never happens in us perfectly until we die or Jesus comes back. But in this life, it's progressive. And we hate our idols, don't we? We hate them. We want to cast them off. We can't wait for the day when their callings will no longer be temptations to us. But they will be, we will be rid of them. And we are increasingly becoming people of the truth, aren't we? We preach the truth. We speak the truth. We live in light of the truth of God's word. And so, brothers and sisters, do you see how the entire gospel and the glories of the ascension are here in this song? And why are they here? to encourage us to be preparing ourselves for the coming of our King. Our sovereign Creator is coming back. As surely as He came the first time, He's coming back the second time. We can know that with absolute certainty. And and we have no way of approaching Him in and of ourselves, and, and nobody else does. Those that we preach the gospel to, they have no hope in and of themselves. But God has provided one, the second Adam, the King of glory, He's done everything necessary so that we now have access to him. And so may the Lord use this song to ready our hearts for his return the second time, even as he did with the old covenant saints the first time. And may our prayer ever be, as we're going to sing in just a little bit, O come, O come, Emmanuel, the second time, and ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears again the second time. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. So be it. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we humble ourselves before you, acknowledging you are our sovereign creator. All things belong to you, including our own selves, and so we offer you worship. As Psalm 2 implores us, commands us, we kiss the Son, we serve him with fear and trembling, because we know that in and of ourselves we have no way to approach you. We're thankful that he did everything that was necessary so that we can. And he's now ascended, interceding for us in the heavenly temple at your right hand, We have a sympathetic and sufficient high priest. And so may we look to him and live expectantly knowing that he is coming back, the king of glory. And may you use us to make that good news known here in Bakersfield and to the ends of the earth that the nations might sing your praises. Those for whom you've died of every tongue and tribe and nation. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.